What's going on? It's your boy, Just Prince, from the Balance Effect Podcast. And I'm here to talk to you about Anchor. Such a great app. First and foremost, it's free. There's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make in a podcast in just one place. Super dope. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. And this is definitely Balance Effect approved. Hey, it's a celebration. Holy gang in here. Lil' Leaf out. Free gang. God's plan. See a panel like a Panamera Till then, hit me catching at the apex The climax way bigger than the IMAX Oh Lord Big screen To make it hit, you taking hits to make you ball up But you say I was built for the road So the only thing that folds is the it's your boy Just Prince from the Balance Effect Podcast Here with one of our special, special guests I'm running it uh, as a Just something as an expose on different you know, pioneers and um, movers and shakers in the Bronx and in New York City. And it's, you know, my pleasure to introduce not only educator, father, former high school coach and athlete, but candidate for uh, Community District Board 16, uh, Mr. Leonardo Coelho. Thank you, man. Thank you, cuz. Thanks for having me on, man. Nah, I, nah. I love the setup you got going on. I mean... I love the energy <laughs> here right now. Nah, it. nah, definitely. I appreciate it, man. So, you know, one of the things that I want to do, I have my podcast, you know, and it's on entrepreneurship, and mm-hmm. it's just, you know, things that, you know, I feel that the community needs, right? right and, right. you know, you're a staple in the community now because people look up to you and they want to kind of see what you're about. They want to get more more in-depth feeling of who you are. Right. So this is what it is. It's kind of like an expose of, you know, candidate uh, Coelho, right? Thank you, thank you, yeah. So first and foremost, right, what... You know, talk to me about your upbringing, like uh, yeah. how, how, where you, where you from, um, where you grow up. You know, kind of introduce yourself to your constituents, yeah, the community. Yeah. Um, wow. So, coincidentally, um, I'll be turning forty-five years old this month. Congratulations. So, thank you, thank you. So, I've, I've, um, I've been fortunate enough to, to walk this earth for some time now, and um, I was originally born in Harlem. Uh, my mother uh, came here um, like 14 years old from Dominican Republic. My father came here at a young age in his early 20s from from Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, as you know, uh, uh, I'm a son of um, two immigrant parents that came to this country poor. They didn't know the language, um, and and here I am. Right, I'm a product of that. Right, I grew up in Harlem, in New York City, all really all over New York City to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So being born in 1975, you know. I saw a lot. Like I saw a lot of, of this city. Um, growing up, I have four sisters. Uh, that was that was fantastic. You know, I, it, it, there was nothing better to be the only boy in, in the house and and be my my mother's only son and 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 my grandmother across the hall and and having four sisters all vying for my attention as well too. So it was a great upbringing. You know, of course we were poor. We lived on Section A. We got food stands, all those things. But when you're growing up during that time. You know, as long as you're happy, you're not really, you know, worrying about what you don't have and, you know, all these other things. And so I never felt like I really didn't have. I didn't I didn't really know how poor I was, you know, growing up and stuff, you know. And so, uh, you know, and I, I attribute that to you know, my mother and my family and everybody that, 
you know, was, was, was tight and, and supported each other as much as possible. Um, but, you know, it, it was tough. It was tough. It was a tough upbringing. It was a tough environment. New York City during the late 70s and into the 80s, you know, got really hard, man. Like, you know, we're talking about, you know, the crack epidemic. We're talking about Reaganomics when um, social services were pretty much gone. Like, I didn't even know what an after-school program was growing up and stuff, you know. And really, the, the you know, the streets really raised me at the end of the day. You know, my mm -hmm. mother was a beautician. And she worked, you know, six, seven days a week, um, you know, 10 to 12 hours sometimes a day at a salon and then still had to come home and, and do hair, you know, at the apartment and stuff, you know, just to get a little extra money. And so uh, it was tough. It was tough growing up, but, you know, you, you made it through. And I, and I think looking back, you know, surviving that, learning from my, watching my mother struggling, but, you know, making it happen, doing what she can. Um, looking at learning from you know family and all the things that they've done and things that they were able to achieve and things that they were able to overcome you know I learned from everybody a little bit and, and then I was able to kind of uh, take those examples and, and do my best to, to, to avoid the pitfalls in the streets and, mm -hmm. and being out there you know it was hard you know I, I did a little bit of everything that was out there too you know but you you I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to be more. I didn't want to be a statistic. I didn't. I didn't want to be, you know, one of those murals that they painted on on the side of the bodegas and stuff, and that people just kind of forget about it and stuff. I really felt like I, there was more. I was put on this earth to do more, and I really felt like I, I I was standing on the shoulders of a lot of people that came before me, and I felt really an obligation to um, to pay that forward. Got you. It's all about paying it forward, right? That's important, right? That's one of the. So the staples of this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. You know, paying it forward, you know, not... I, one of the things I say is conformity. I don't like that, right? No, right. You don't want to be a conformist. You want to always excel, always feel like you're going to that next level, right? And mm -hmm. I feel that that is important not only as, uh, you know, a politician, as an educator, a father, any, any, in any capacity, mm -hmm. you always want to go forward, mm -hmm. right? Now, so as far as, like, you know, now you talked about your upbringing, right? Now, so as far as, you know, your upbringing and your family, mm -hmm. how did that... How did you use that as a trajectory to go the right path, right? Mm -hmm. Because there mm -hmm. were so many pitfalls during, you know, you have Reaganomics, you have the crack epidemic, um, mass incarceration, all mm -hmm. that stuff was during that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what? how did your family kind of like set your feet on the ground for you to kind of like catapult into the man that you are today? Well, you know, like I, like I mentioned, being the, uh, my mother's only son, um, a big brother, you know, big cousin, big everything to a lot of people, you know, there, there were certain responsibilities that came with that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I fully em embraced them, to be honest with you. Like, I, I, I really felt like I had to be an example for my little sisters, right? Like, I had to be an example for my mother, you know, for her to be able to say, look, you know, my son is somebody, you know? Mm -hmm. um, even in the community, like, I, I, I kind of, I didn't grow up, I didn't have any little brothers, but I became, like, everybody's big brother in the community, right? And... And so I knew that a lot of those younger generations were, were looking at me because they had enough of the examples of all the other things that were happening out there, right? And so then, you know, I was like, okay, I do feel obligated that I have to present at least an alternative person for them to look at, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, am I driving around in the newest BMW? No, I'm not. Like, so yeah, that guy's doing that. That's him and stuff, right? Am I, you know... Am I walking around with, you know, $1,000 sneakers on all the time like these guys? No, I'm not. But I wanted to present something different. I wanted to present that, 
you can go to school, right? You 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 could go to school. You can you can you can be an athlete. You can play ball. You know, there's other paths to kind of go down. And I really took that 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 responsibility serious. You know, I really took it serious. And and there were times where I would come to a fork in the road that I had to make a decision that probably wasn't a very good decision. And the thing that used to always steer me the other way was, damn, what would your mother what would your mother think right now? Damn, what's your what's your sisters are gonna feel like when? When so, that goes wrong, you know what are what are your what are your cousins? What are your little cousins? And what are your, you know the the, the younger young men that are in um, that look up to you? What are they gonna? How are they gonna feel if this goes the wrong way and stuff? And that was always the thing that kind of kept me grounded. You know, even to, to to today, I feel like I always continue to have to, you know, be the best man that I can be. You know, because I just feel like I'm obligated to do that um, for all of those folks that made those sacrifices for me and mm-hmm. and. You know, I needed to be that example for some folks. No, of course. I mean, that's that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. I mean, I can relate. I have a younger brother. I have younger cousins, younger siblings and stuff like that. So I can definitely relate to that right now. Kind of moving forward to, like, kind of like your employment history as far as, like, your background, where you, mm-hmm. as far as, like, your your, your, your education and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Where where did you start? Where, where, where did you start? Like, did you start in education? Was that some of one of the things that you started in, or did you start somewhere else? Nah, man. So when I when I graduated out of high school, I, I still wanted to play ball, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't go away, though. Like, I don't know. It just wasn't in my DNA mm-hmm. to leave my family, leave, my, you know, my mother. I just, for some reason, I just wasn't built for it and mm-hmm. stuff, right? And so, you know, I, I limited myself. You know, go, thinking back, I probably, if I knew now what I, <laughs> back then, I probably would have made a different choice, but everything happens for a reason. So I stayed in the city, and I knew a friend that knew a coach at Hunter College, right? And Hunter College at the time had just won, like, their third Division Three basketball championship and stuff. And he was like, yo, I can introduce you to the coach, and, you know, maybe you could come down. And I was like, all right, cool. So I, I went down, and they was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we like you and stuff. So I was like, all right. So I just applied, and I went to Hunter College. It wasn't nothing on my I, – I, I never knew where Hunter College was at or nothing. Like, the first time I went, it was just to play ball, hang out with the team and stuff. And so I signed up and stuff. And so here I am going to Hunter College right after um, high school. Um, I'm on the I'm, – I'm practicing with the team. But it's hard. Like, if you don't have a financial support, you know, like my mother and, you know, they, she, she's like, yo, you a man now. Like, you in college, you got to take care of yourself. You got to do what you got to do. And, you know, I didn't have the finances to be able to just ball and go to school. Like, I, I needed to make money and stuff. And so, like, in the middle, like, the first season, like, I quit. Like, I couldn't play ball anymore, and I, had to, I went to get a job. And so I was going to Hunter College, and I was working for UPS at night, right? So I would, I would, I would be at Hunter College on 77th in, like, Lexington, get off. I would walk from Lexington, you know, that's all the way, that's all the way on the east side. side. 77th. I would walk all the way south to 42nd Street, mm-hmm. and then all the way across 42nd Street to UPS, which is like on 11th and 12th Avenue, yeah. all the way on the west side. And so, so that was my that was my walk, and and then I, w- I had like the kind of like what's considered like a, uh, a graveyard shift. So it was like 6 p.m. to like midnight, and that's what I was just I was just doing that for a while, right? And then a friend of mine uh, that was working at UPS, he was like, yo. I know somebody, they, they're giving um, temp jobs uh, at, back then it was called Ben Atlantic. <laughs> uh, I was like, all right, I'll take a second job. So now I'm working, you know, two jobs, 
also trying to, you know, finish school. And it was it was hard. It was all three of those things. So one had to go at, at, at some point. And unfortunately, it had to be school. So then I ended up working, you know, two jobs for a while and, you know, kept grinding. And the next thing you know, I, I started to get promotions at Bell Atlantic. They then became Verizon. And next thing you know, I, be, I went into management. And I lasted like 10 years in in corporate in the corporate sector like you know I went from being on the desk as a rep then I was a manager I had my own team I was you know had a, I was manager of a call center and stuff so it was really it was really good I was making a lot a lot of money too and I was super young I was like in my early 20s mid 20s making a lot of money that I wouldn't I wouldn't never been really making um, at that age without a college degree and stuff so I did that for a while but I, I didn't feel fulfilled bro like I didn't I felt like okay I'm making money but I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not having an impact. I'm not doing anything that's, that's work that's feeling, that makes me feel fulfilled. And I've always been about community. I've always been about doing things for, and then they had this thing called, they had a package, mm -hmm. an early retirement package. They had this product coming out that was, that was killing them. Everybody knows it now and everybody loves it. It's called Files. Mm -hmm. But back then when they rolled it out, it was killing them. It was, it was draining the company. They almost went bankrupt. So what they had to do, they had to give they were offering um, people like retirement packets to just leave, like just you know, we're gonna cut you this five-figure check, just and and benefits for a year, just just go. And I was like, you know what, I'm out. I just took it and I said I'm gonna get into something that has to do with my community, something that has to do with having an impact on black and brown people. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were there like, oh, my God, because a lot of people took it. And they was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I was packing up like, later, I'm out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got this opportunity to get into um, nonprofit, man. And, and, and everything is, you know, it's been kind of history from there and stuff, man. Wow, man. So you go from corporate to education. So do you feel like, so like this is a quote from Nipsey. He said, you know, find your purpose or you're wasting there, right? Mm -hmm. So you felt like you found your life's purpose from switching from corporate all the way to education like that's a complete yeah different thing right like, yeah two different know, worlds two, two different diff worlds. two completely different worlds. one is very both can be very volatile right yeah very yeah. cutthroat yeah. but they deal one is dealing with people the other one is dealing with profit. numbers profit figures right that's it. so you find your life purpose you go into education now talk to me about like the education like you're you, you like you go into education where do you start at what point you get into <laughs> non-profit um how does that look like who are you servicing? Where are you servicing at? What so what? So when I when I was like, okay, I'm going into nonprofit. Like I gotta work with my community. I gotta do something. I'm looking around, I'm trying to find an organization to be a part of and stuff. You know, I I, um, I get lucky and um, my resume gets given to the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, Harlem uh, Children's Zone calls up. They have a Beacon Center on 144th Street. I come in for an interview. You know, all of my stuff is like corporate background. Like everything on my resume has to do with corporate. Nothing like really nonprofit, mm -hmm. running at a Beacon Center or nothing. Um, had a good interview, but before the interview was over, I, t I told the lady that was the director at that time. I said, "Listen, I said, listen, I get what's on my resume. I get." I said, "But before I walk out of here, I'm gonna let you know. I'll take any single job you have in this in this organization. Anything. It doesn't matter if it's part time, small time, whatever it is. I'll take it because." I, it meant a lot for me to be a part of that organization because one, not only was it a nonprofit, it was in my community mm -hmm. of Harlem where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And then I looked up um, Jeffrey Canada, the, the the gentleman that was the um, the founder of it, and like I was sold on his philosophy of nonprofit and 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 the support how you support communities. 
And I just wanted to be a part of it. And I knew that, yo, you just let me, I'm the type of person, just let me in the door. If you let me in the door, I promise you, I'm going to find my way, I'm going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So they was like, okay, you know what? We're going to give you this part-time uh, uh, physical activity person because we see, we saw you, you play ball and you did all this other stuff. I said, cool, no problem. I'll take it. Yo, every year I got a promotion. Like it, I went from, you know, coordinator of this to, you know, coordinator of that to this. Then I went. Then they sent. Then I went over to their their main site. Became you know a coordinator, a assistant director. Then I, then they sent me. Then my first step into the education side of it was they had their you know they had their own charter school, Promise Academy. And so they was like, listen, we want you to go over there. And we want you to be the head dean at the charter and, and be a part of that administrative team over there. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You know. And then so that's when I stepped in from it, just kind of solely being nonprofit, community based. So now I'm stepping into the. Um, the nonprofit kind of education side of things and being part of this administrative team in there and stuff. So what I'm noticing is that a huge outlier, right? Success, right? Yep. You are very keen on success, being successful, turning any situation into a successful one. Yep. If some, if life gives you lemons, you're gonna make lemonade. Always. You might make iced tea out of it. You Always. know what I'm saying? Always. So, so that's that's the outlier, right? So now. Me coming from now, I, you and you're talking about charter. I come from the public education system. Can you kind of give me like your definition of what you feel is like the difference between the two? Because I have people on my side that say it's different. I have mm -hmm. people on your side that say it's different. But at the end of the day, I feel mm -hmm. like it's the same thing because we're educating students at the mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. But there's also the politics behind that, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to hear your version of you know the difference between uh, public schools and charter schools. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a very unique perspective because most people that work in either one mm -hmm. never work in the other one, mm -hmm. right? So everybody usually stays in that lane wherever mm -hmm. they're at. I was fortunate enough to be a part of an organization here in the Bronx called Eastside House Settlement. Mm -hmm. And Eastside House had a, a relationship with the Board of Education mm -hmm. that they actually developed an actual public school um, with the DOE in partnership with the DOE, mm -hmm. but it was co-ran by this nonprofit, this C, uh, CBO. Mm -hmm. And so it was a transfer high school um, here in the Bronx in the My Haven section. Mm -hmm. So I, I was fortunate enough to get a promotion to work with this other organization, and I was what's called the school director. Mm -hmm. So the, the way that that particular school was set up was that there was the principal, mm -hmm. and she was in charge of all the academic things, mm -hmm. and then there was me co-leading the school, and I was in charge of all the social service aspects everything that's like non-academic mm -hmm. i was in charge of that right so yeah so i was you know in charge of like you know school culture you know um anything that had to do that just wasn't around lesson lesson planning and things <laughs> okay. like that right yeah, um <laughs> and so it was it was great because they it, it i was in an actual doe school mm -hmm. and so i was able to now see how that world works right because mm -hmm. me and the principal had to sit down, you know, regularly and figure out how we run in this school, like how we run in this. And the, the, the thing about that school, it was, it was a transfer school. So a transfer school, you know, I'm sure you know, is like these, these are students, this is a population that, it, out. yeah, they're, 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 they were trying to get phased out by regular schools, right? Mm -hmm. They're either they're either over age, um, about to age out, or they're severely undercredited and probably not going to make it in a mm -hmm. traditional school. So they come to these transfer schools because we have we give them the opportunity to be able to do like an accelerated type of uh, program so they can catch up and, and get their high school diploma before aging out at 21. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to see that side of it. And the, so my perspective is that, okay, I saw the charter world, mm -hmm. I saw the DOE world, and you know, both sides have pros and cons. Mm -hmm. You know, both sides have pros and cons. And, and 
and I think what the, the difficult thing is is that, of course, when you're on one side of things, you shield your negatives and you point your finger on the other side. Same thing the other side does. And so that's why there's those, you know, kind of like drawing the line type of thing, right? But same, but some of the same challenges the DOE is facing, you know, charters facing, mm-hmm. and vice versa, right? And so the worlds are, are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they are facing a lot of challenges, but each side, some of them do good things and some of them do, some do challenges on the other side. And so my thing is that I want to kind of go into things where, okay, I've seen both sides. I want to be the one I can bring everybody to the table now. Bipartisanship. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. No, that's that's that was that would be great, but you know when you have people saying that you know oh, we're expecting, uh, for instance, one of the things that says one of the budding jokes is that we expect the influx of new students being kicked out of charter schools mm-hmm. in sept in uh, in October after the the budget gets cut mm-hmm. and uh, you know y'all get your money and then you. Charter school will uh, send over all the kids that you know they don't want in their school, and we'll come get them. You're right. You know what I mean. But then, but then, so let's say about I was at a table, mm-hmm. and somebody in the DOE said that to me, right? Mm-hmm. I would then turn around and say, okay, but let me pull out a, a skeleton out of the DOE's closet because mm-hmm. I know, right? Mm-hmm. So I, when I was running the, that DOE school, mm-hmm. there was an enrollment number that I had to meet, mm-hmm. right? And so by the by a certain time. They ha- we, I had to have a certain amount of kids in the school exactly. or that budget wouldn't come in, right? Exactly. But at the same time, the school was being held to a certain attendance number as well, too. Right. So when I asked the principal, yo, I, I want to see all the data for the last couple of years and stuff. So I'm, I'm at my desk looking at data. Yo, why is our attendance so so crazy? Mm-hmm. Let me look. And so I said, let, let, print me out the sheet of, of, of the last two years of our kids that we've had attendance with so I can start to kind of map out and see what's going on. I see a huge list of kids that were all on zeros. Mm-hmm. Never showed up to school, and I'm like, why are they on this report? It, and they, all these zeros are killing the attendance. Mm-hmm. I said, why don't we just take them off, and then right. our attendance will go up? It was like, well, we those are considered ghost kids. I said, well, what are ghost kids? Well, we keep those kids around because when November comes, we want that money. We want that money. I'm like, okay, but then they're killing the att- the attendance numbers. Mm-hmm. And we get and graded on attendance numbers and stuff. And Roman is down. And then so and so that's what I'm trying to say. So there's skeletons. It's, 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 it's skeletons in both closets. On both yes. closets. Yes. And it's just about all right. Let's just put our skeletons on the table. Let's put our challenges on the table. And let's, and let's figure it. and just figure this out. What's best at, for for both sides. Right. I, I I agree with you 100%. Now moving forward. Right now, see, we're kind of in like everyone knows that you know coronavirus, the pandemic, all that stuff has you know forced schools to kind of close down and you know, rewire the way that we teach, right? Yeah, yeah. So now you have students in, you know, learning from home, and there's a lot of challenges that are being faced, right? Yeah. Um, you know, some people come from, some children are in, uh, you know, rooms with, or houses with DV, um, drug abuse, mm-hmm. um, broken homes, shelters, stuff like that. So um, what, what, what do you, like, what do you say to, like, those students that, like, are now finally going to start coming back to school now? Like, what outreach do you think they need? Like, oh, oh, because I know that you work with like the social service side when you was in the mm-hmm. in the in that settlement um, um, house in the Mahaven section. Mm-hmm. So, like, what? How would you go about you know you know bringing those restorative practices practices like to kind of ingratiate them back mm-hmm. into the learning environment, school? Like, how would that look? Um, you know, as a school director mm-hmm. now. Right. Yeah, it's tough, man, because I think what's going to happen is that we're not going to really have the resources for a lot of that stuff, right? The, and the way that I would attack it is, one, understanding that our kids are coming back not with just the trauma that they had before, because mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, being poor is a trauma, mm-hmm. right? Living in certain communities is a trauma, right? 
And then now when they come back, they're going to have all this trauma of maybe family members passing away because of COVID, right. whatever situations like you mentioned at mm -hmm. home. And so now they're going to be coming back with a whole different set now of trauma added on. And so now it's, it's really important that I know the education part is, it's, it's right there just as equally as important as the social services part. But when these kids get back and these families get back, it's really important for us to find a way where we can now try to connect with them mm -hmm. and find out what are these traumas and stuff mm -hmm. and how can we help out, what type of services do they need, mm -hmm. what, do we, what do we need to add on to some of these students that were already receiving services. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just there, there's so much that's going to be coming back that we have to now try to unravel because if we don't, then education-wise, they won't be able to learn anyway. Right. So if you don't address that stuff now when they get back, um, they're not going to be able to take any state ex exams or anything when they when they get back. Mm -hmm. So we might as well, when they come back, put a flood into you know those social services. We we need most more, you know, we need guide, more guidance counselors in, in the schools. We need more um, you know psychologists we need every we need all of those things in the school we need programs outside the schools mm -hmm. that we can refer students and families to as well too right. to try to deal with a lot of that trauma that, that these students are going to be coming back with and even with the families and the parents as well too and so we have to focus on that man and, and i'm hoping that there are going to be folks that are really going to pay attention to that because and it's going to be difficult right because at the end of the day the system is not changing budgets for schools and everything are still going to be determined by by how they do on exams and all of that other stuff and that's always going to be on the forefront of people mm -hmm. that are trying to keep the doors open right. but we have to be able to try to get into these um, kids heads find out the trauma try to support them try to support their families but that's going to come with a lot of focus and i'm hoping that the leaders of this of the state of the city and of this country really focus on that right that's important that's very important right um so kind of switching hats mm -hmm. right as from educator now to dad right so how do you feel about um with your sons, how did you feel about the process of, you know, remote learning? Like, did you feel that they were getting the proper education as a father? Do you feel like they were getting what they needed? Because, you know, as a teacher, I can tell you it was flawed. Right? Of course. It was flawed. There was a lot of things that weren't, we didn't have any, any like, there wasn't really any plan laid out as far as like, how was it going to look? And there was even less of a plan now with the reopening, right? So as a dad, how do you think, how did you feel like, do you feel like the education was lost in that aspect? You know, in, in all fairness, you know, I, you know, I was on, you know, the, an administrative team when it happened, when everything shut down in March, right? Mm -hmm. And it was, it was crazy, man. Nobody was ready for this. Nobody like was prepared for, you know, this remote learning and, and it was, and you were just kind of learning on the fly, right? You're just trying to figure out, you know, there's a great saying that uh, Jeffrey Cannon, my mentor says like, all of a sudden you're just. You're, fl you're, you're flying in an airplane that you're building at the same time, right? Like, you're building this, but you're already in the air already. There's no going back now. And so it was, it was tough, man, and I knew that it was really hard, especially for the little ones. Um, it was very difficult for them. You know, the school that I was at, the last school that I was at was um, Boys Prep, um, one of the, the only all-boys charter school here in New York City from kindergarten to eighth grade. And it was difficult. The, the kids, did, they didn't transition well. Mm -hmm. The, the it was overwhelming for parents it was overwhelming for our, our, our teachers it was really difficult and you know and, you know going to your question about you know my kids I knew that it, it, they, they, it was a little easier for them because I got lucky because they're they're older right and there was they can you know navigate that a little better but um but I knew they wasn't getting you know the proper education that they mm -hmm. needed at that time you know and, and I was hoping that you know during the summer the rest of that and into the summer 
that you know the folks that be the DOE and the chance and everybody will kind of get it figured out a little better mm -hmm. to then bring it into September at least a little better than it was in March but unfortunately you know that's been a disaster as well too unfortunately it has disaster is uh I wouldn't put it disaster. I'll put a better word. So I don't, yeah. It doesn't come to mind right now. But, right. Uh, Anything that's a disaster but, uh, to a disaster. <laughs> yes, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, as far as um, education now, right? Like you, you, you said talked about mentors, right? And I, you know, starting this process, you know, like we talked about conformity and not being a conformist, being successful, and understanding that we know where we came from, but we want to change our trajectory uh -huh. and go into a different place. Now, who were your mentors? as far as like switching from corporate now to education and obviously to you know politics you know the funny thing is being 10 years in, in education i always add a little asterisk and i say i was never a teacher though yeah, yeah. right mm -hmm. i was never a teacher because mm -hmm. i that 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 was just something that i was like wow that's that's superhero work right there and mm -hmm. i don't that's just something that i don't think i can do mm -hmm. but i went into that i went into that arena because i i found a void there that i felt like i was the only one that i knew that can fill it and that void was being the connection between the educators and the families and the students that were coming into the schools it, it just happens to be that unfortunately we don't have enough you know teachers that look like us and so a lot right. of the so I, I saw that a lot of the teachers and a lot of the administrators were people that were coming from different cultures right different backgrounds out of state and while they were while they were good teachers they learned the practice of teaching, they went and got certified and everything. They, they they weren't able to do their jobs that well because they were they don't they didn't understand the culture of the children and the families that they were working with. And so my my step in was to be able to close that gap between them mm -hmm. and be able to have conversations with both sides to help them further understand each other. And as I did that, I saw that that teachers became better teachers. And students became better students right. because I was able to kind of bridge that that connect yeah. with them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my mentors and the people that I looked at weren't necessarily teachers, but they were people that that just showed me how to be able to understand and have the emotional intelligence to be able to communicate with teachers and the families, right? Because it's it's a balance. These teachers are this is their life's work. This is what they want to do. This is what they're passionate about. And when they feel like they're failing at it it's difficult to talk to them it's difficult to do that so i had to learn how to internalize that from them and be able to communicate and talk to them in a way to help them at the same time you have you have a parent that's bringing the most important thing that's in the world to them to come to get educated and they're not getting what they what they want now the parent feels like they're failing and they're not doing the right thing by their child so i have to be able to speak to that parent understand you know their feelings and help them out and then you have a, a a young child that's kind of stuck in between these two worlds feeling like nobody understands them and then i have to be able to try to relate to that child as well too and encourage and mentor them so it was just a lot about looking for people that showed me how to understand human beings how to be um, emotionally intelligent how to be a leader at times in, in the most difficult situations and so those if you you know that puzzle of like my mentors came from all over the place. This is from athletes, from activists, from the guy in the, the bodega owner in, in, in that I, you know, it, it, I took a little piece from everybody mm -hmm. to really fill out, you know, what inspires me and what helps me do the things that I do. So what, so you said athlete, right? So what athlete would inspire you 
give me one athlete that you think would be a mentor, somebody that inspires you to do the good work that you do on a daily basis? The first person that comes to my head, and I know it kind of sounds cliche, is like Muhammad Ali, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason why Muhammad Ali like really calls to me is because why I was in all of these schools bridging these gaps, a lot of times I became the outsider because everybody is focused on the education part, but I would always make sure that everybody understood the other aspects, the cultural aspects, the human aspects of things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're that person always sounding that alarm, you're looked at as, a, as an outsider, like, oh, here, here you go again, bringing in this and mm -hmm. stuff. But I'm like, no, like, this is what I'm here for. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to represent that parent that doesn't speak English because that was my mother, that was my family. That was, you know, I'm going to represent that young boy that doesn't have somebody that, to speak for him because I was that young boy at times and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to always speak out and put, you know, and present things that sometimes people didn't want to hear, right? And and sometimes I'll be honest with you, like it it, it had an effect on on my career, right? Like I, I I could have probably been on whatever level, you know, in the education system, but I would never let an opportunity come that I, I didn't stand up for the people that I needed to stand up for, mm -hmm. because I knew that I had to go home and be able to look myself in the mirror and sleep at night, and also look at my my children's eyes and say, you know, your dad is, has, has, you know, uh, is, is an ethical man at the end of the day. Stand up guy. And is a stand-up man and stuff, right? And so Ali, with the way that he, you know, sacrificed of not, you know, not going to the draft, standing for, you know, his religious beliefs, even if they stri stripped away his belt at, at, at his highest point of his, you know, career, mm -hmm. but still being able to overcome that, like, no, now I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a champion again, even though you took that away from me in my prime, that's somebody that I kind of – um really connect with because you know I, I I've gotten knocked down a lot of times but I've always felt like I'm gonna get right back up and I'm gonna get that belt right back and stuff right four nine times get get back up ten that's right? right so another outlier so you got success we got education we got you know all that stuff and then advocacy right yeah that's what that's what stands out to me that's so you know moving on to your you know political aspirations and how you got into politics right so for for the for my understanding, politics is can be a very dirty, volatile, you know, uh, field. Yeah, um, yeah. Makes they say politics makes strange bedfellows. Mm -hmm. So kind of like the budding question is why politics, and why now, right? What what made you want to jump into that arena? Um, you know, I I, I, I commend you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's not a lot of you know brothers from the from the neighborhood are doing that they don't see that's not something they aspire to but why why now why politics so yeah so i was when i was working in the education it came to a point where i was like i need to do more like i know i'm having an impact on these families that i'm working with in the schools but i'm looking around my community and i'm like i have to do more so initially i started my own nonprofit, mm -hmm. right and i wanted to have an impact on on everything all the social ills possible right and so i i'm being the consummate kind of like student, I began to like do research around the things that are negatively impacting our communities, right? And so, for example, out you know, housing is a tremendous issue here in the Bronx, especially here in my district as well too. So I wanted to kind of look at you know the history of, of NYCHA, public housing, all these different things. And as I started to kind of go down that rabbit hole, bro, like I started to see that a lot of these things and a lot of these social ills started through the kind of negligence of government. And, and a, not just negligence, some of it was like outright intentional meant to, you know, keep you know, a certain group of people 
you know, um, in, in the horrible, horrible conditions possible and mm -hmm. stuff, right? And when I started to do that, every social issue that I that I kind of traced back to, kept tracing back to government, and I and and it just became like uh, and I just had this epiphany, like yo, wow, like do people know this? That do people know that this is the root of it? And like we we it's like everybody's attacking the the symptoms, but are we going back to what the, the actual the root. root of the problem is and stuff? And I kept seeing that, and then. Then I got to a point I was like, you know what? Government is the issue. Like, we're, we don't have anybody that's really um, taking responsibility of the governance of our people. So I want to look around. I want to see somebody that's about this so I can really now stand behind them and start going to bat for them. So I'm doing research again, looking at different candidates. Look at this. Who's the borough president? Who's, who's my district? Who's this? Who's that? And I was just thoroughly disappointed, bro. Mm -hmm. Thoroughly disappointed. I was just like, wow, this is nobody. And then it came to me like... It's gonna be you. It gotta be you. Like now that you know, like you have this information now. Now you're obligated to, to do something with it now. And I and I just felt like okay, I have to do it. And you know, I had some. I got some great advice that said, listen, before you do that, touch base with you know your closest family, with the people you love, because when you when you jump into that arena, you're not jumping into that by yourself. Everybody else is jumping in that with you because they all then also become part of that world and stuff. And mm -hmm. so. I had some conversations with my mother, you know, with you know, with with my sisters, you know, at at the time my girlfriend who's now my fiance and I was like, "Yo, I'm jumping into this. You, what do you think? Y'all with me?" And they was like, "We got you. This is that's where you're supposed to be." And once I got that that, you know, that push and and and, and that support, you know, I I'm 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 going all in, bro. Like I'm mm -hmm. going all in. Like I have to, man. I'm I'm I didn't even go back to work, bro. Like I'm not even going back to work in the education. I saved my money up, and I made sure that my bills are covered for the next, you know, hopefully next couple months and everything. Mm -hmm. Nothing crazy happens, like boiler don't break or nothing, <laughs> a roof cave in or nothing. But right. I should be good, and I'm and I'm campaigning full time. I'm putting everything into it because it means that much to me right now, bro. Mm -hmm. So, so why this? So this district, right? You, you grew up in Harlem. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of you know, I mean, we all grew up in Harlem, so it's like we understand like the pitfalls and stuff like that that happen out here, right? So I know you have you live here, you have um, your sons grew up here. Why District 16? Why why this why why District 16? I know that historically this is probably the poorest district in the country, yeah. right? Congressional, yeah, yeah, congressional, congressional yeah. poorest congressional district, right? In the entire country. In the entire country. So this includes Morrisania. Help me out here. And more, yeah, I know. Say you got, you got the Concourse Village. You go over to like um, around University, Jerome. You know, you Sedgwick. You got all those areas. Mm -hmm. You know, you, if you, 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 I just came over from the McKinley projects. You got Webster. You have you know um, Foster projects. It, just in the district alone, we mm -hmm. have twenty three different NYCHA complexes, bro. Twenty three. We the Bronx has the most um, NYCHA complexes. Bro, NYCHA but I'm talking about that's, and that's just the district, district. sixteen. <laughs> 23 Three different, different ones. ones. You know how many people? 28,000 people live in those in those in those NYCHA buildings, bro. Mm -hmm. And then and you wouldn't believe the conditions as those things was in. So anyway, going going to your question. So I did live through I was in Harlem, right? And we all know if you go to Harlem now, Harlem don't look like Harlem. No, it doesn't. Harlem don't look like Harlem back in the days, no, right? Right? There's like a Starbucks on every corner. 
you know, there's still, you know, there's a gentrification really rolled in on us and caught us sleeping. It hit us hard, especially hit Hamilton us hard. Heights. It hit us hard. And, hard. and I tell people all the time, listen, I want my, I want the community to be better, but gentrification means that they, it got better but left us out of it. Yeah, it's right? the difference between revitalization, right. Right. gentrification. Yes. Right, exactly. And so rents went up. You know, people got kicked out. Everybody had to kind of migrate. Honestly, almost migrate. First, everybody was kind of first migrating up to Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, the wave of gentrification kept going up that way. Mm -hmm. And now everybody's kind of started to migrate into the Bronx and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so as I look back and I see where Harlem is now and I saw how it got there, I'm here in the Bronx. And I've been, you know, I, I, I bought my house like over 15 years ago. I'm seeing what's happening in the Bronx now happen in Harlem. Slowly, I'm seeing the changes happening. Slowly, I'm seeing the little small mom and pop stores closing, and now all of a sudden, this big chain thing comes. Slowly, I'm seeing things a little different. I'm like, nah, I can't let this happen here as well, too. Mm -hmm. I can't. I saw what happened. Again, being the person that saw it, you're responsible for these people not to be the ones left out also. And mm -hmm. a lot of them being left out for, for the second time now because mm -hmm. they moved from Harlem and Washington Heights over here because rent was crazy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, nah, you're responsible for that now. And I have to be able to, like you said, I want the changes to come, but I want to make sure that our people and the people that are here get the best out of it as well too. Right, so that's important. I feel like that's a that's a good reasoning, right? So kind of staying on politics, right? Um, talk to me about the importance of voting, right? Um, I know your campaign mm -hmm. is... is is a is a up and coming startup campaign like, um, it's basically homegrown, right? Mm -hmm. Um, talk to me about the importance of voting and why, um, you think like obviously we're going through voter suppression and all that stuff, but why do you think people are just not voting now, right? They're at their all time lows. I get a text every day. Are you registered to vote? Yes, I'm a registered Democrat. Mm -hmm. I'm registered <laughs> to vote. You know what I mean? So wh 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 why do you think? Why do you, wh talk to me about the importance of voting? I mean, the truth is, is like it's about awareness education you know and just about the conditions that people are living in it's it's hard for people to people that have been going through things for years and decades they don't feel like their vote matters you know because anybody that was in you know these elected official positions they were like i'm i've been poor through all of them and stuff i don't i don't feel no different like my life hasn't changed at all mm -hmm. and so you know you do have that sentiment from a lot of people you know you People just don't know the importance of it, right? Like people don't know that, you know, you of how a vote impacts your day to day, and who you put into office impacts your day to day living, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, people just don't know it, and 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 the ones that other people just don't care, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't have it hasn't had an impact and stuff. But it's important for people that understand folks to try to put it in terms that they can understand why it's important, right? So I always tell the story about people. People always growing up, if there was a hole in the street, out in the hood, you always heard, Psh, if that hole was in 96th Street in Broadway, it wouldn't have been here for three months already. That, that hole would have got fixed in two days. Right. And I'd be like, you're right. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. But I said, but let me tell you a story why that that's not fixed. It's not because, the, you know, technically they don't want to do their job because there's people that work for the city that that's their job to do, right? Mm -hmm. I said, the reason why is because the person that's your elected official what they, a lot of times those elected officials do, they go look at an area and they go look at how many people voted in that area. And if there's a small block of people that vote in that area, 
then the money that that um, politician gets, he's going to allocate it somewhere else to where, where, where the, yeah, where more people are voting in that block. So then when he comes over there, he says, hey, remember, I filled your hole over here first. Mm-hmm. You go, okay, cool, we're going to go vote for you. And so I tell people that, so then when you start voting, even if, listen, even if the, you don't really like the candidate 100%, mm-hmm. just exercise your right to vote mm-hmm. because when those, those numbers have an impact, because that, that next politician or whoever, they go and say, oh, the numbers are increasing over there. People mm-hmm. are actually voting and being a part of the de- democratic process. Yeah, I'm gonna send somebody to go get that fixed so I can, I can have something to leverage over there and stuff, right? But the fact that you're not, you're not voting, you're not doing anything, people don't, there's no interest for them to do those things for you. Mm-hmm. Down in 96, they all voting down there. And they'll call, they'll call their elected officials and say, hey, there's a hole in my street. I expect that to be fixed in the next week or so. Or if not, I'm talking to every single tenant association because I know your election's coming up in, in a couple months. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, that door is filled. So mm-hmm. it's it, the, that's how important the vote is. Not just necessarily about who you're casting the vote mm-hmm. for, but just the fact that you're casting the vote at all. So let's just get out there and vote. Mm-hmm. You know, and hopefully the person that the, the, the options that you have is somebody that's worth the vote. But if not, just doing the actual voting is just as important. So, okay, so. So, but like, break down to me, like, as far as, like, the city government. Like, I know you're running for a city council, right? Yeah. How does that look like? Because, you know, for me, I understand certain things, right, as far as, like, you know, the importance of voting and who, knowing who's your alderman, who's your council member, mm-hmm. and who's, who's your advocate, right? So, because people don't even know that. No. They don't know who's who's who. So, you know, no. like, how you said, you just made a statement how that person on the street will call their, their, their elected official. They know who they are. Right. A lot of the people in District 16 don't even know who that person know, is. Don't even know who that person <laughs> is, right? So break down to me how, like, the hierarchy as far as, like, yeah. city government. Who do, who do they call if they need to fill up the hole? Right. So so the entire city is broken up into 51 districts. Mm-hmm. And there's a city council member that represents each one of those districts. And that city council person is responsible for all the municipal services in your district. That means the education, sanitation, uh, police, firemen, anything, any service that the city, you know, um, gives, you know, their their residents, you know, that kind of that directly filters through your city council person and stuff, Correct. right? So there, so when the budget co- time comes, you know, the, uh, the 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 city council person gets a certain allotted budget that they are able to like distribute within their district, right? And then when the time comes for the budget for the city to be um, allocated, that person, that, that city council person is going in there and fighting for what's important in their district, right? So if my district, if I see that my school, the, the schools in my district are suffering, they're not, I'm, when I go in to those chambers and we're talking about budgeting, I'm gonna make sure that that money, as much money as possible is going into the education budget because in my district, that's what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. It's different than everyone. You go to other districts, they they worried about their parks, right? Like they want, oh, our parks are, we need, those city council persons, they'll go in there and make sure that the parks department is getting the certain budget that they can get, they're getting allocated to the parks and what, what they want with their constituents and stuff. But so it, that's what that's what the main major issue is, is that that person should be representing their district, their constituents and what they need in their district. And then once they, they um, break that up and allocate, then they have to vote on the budget, mm-hmm. right? And then once they get a certain amount of numbers, then the budget is passed for the city, and that's how that money is allocated. So I tell people, the, the city council and the mayor is kind of similar to, like, Congress 
and the president. Mm -hmm. You know, they can, there's a, there's a kind of like a checks and balance between right. the city council and the mayor. Um, and it's very similar to like how the federal government is set up as well too. Got you. So, so now you're, you're in politics, you're, you're, you're in advocacy. Like, you know, you seem to be very successful whenever you step foot into anything. So first and foremost, I wish you the most success. Thank you. I thank feel you. like thank you, we need, we need more, we need more people that understand the system and are going to advocate for those that are in need. Mm -hmm. Um, so now kind of turning key to more of the social issues that are going on in, mm -hmm. in our nation. So recently, well, not recently, I would say a couple months back, I reached out to you because I wanted to do a kind of like make a statement, right? Mm -hmm. I was in my house. I was starting a podcast. I was doing a whole bunch of stuff as far as like, you know, transitioning from the day job. I don't want to do the nine to five thing anymore. Right. So, uh, but I'm seeing all this stuff going on, right? You know, people that look just like me and you getting shot and uh, no, nothing is being done, mm -hmm. right? People are in outrage, you know, there's rioting, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And then you see, uh, you know, what kind of like made me pop was when, you know, I saw the video of this black man being, you know, literally trampled to death, mm -hmm. right? He had a guy, you know, uh, he had a knee in his neck for over eight minutes and 46 seconds. And mm -hmm. I was just like, okay, enough is enough. So I reached out to you and I said, you know what? I want to do something, right? And I want to do something that's going to be impactful, and but I want it to be led by us, right? Because mm -hmm. it's important. A lot of these times, I'm, I went to a march before we had our, before we, we had the one that we were doing, and I didn't see anybody look like me. Mm -hmm. It was very, it was very small little quadrants of people that mm -hmm. looked like me, but for the most part, it was literally uh, people of other uh, races, denominations, and stuff like that, which is fine, because mm -hmm. that actually fine. breaks brings more awareness to it but it should be led by us restoring the trust into the new york city police department mm -hmm. um how would how would you map that out as far as like building the trust between the community and the police department mm -hmm. and racial tension and understanding you know the societal norms right because a lot of these people that come into our communities are not necessarily from our communities right so they don't understand that if me and you are playing capico on the table and i slam the table and we laughing and we joking that doesn't mean i'm trying to beat you up right that means we're having a good time mm -hmm. but they may see it as that i'm a threat mm -hmm. right so how how would you kind of like maneuver or go about you know restoring that trust in that you know that understanding of mm -hmm. you know what this is this is where we at this is where we need to be at. first i want to commend you bro i mean you know the fact that you you know you you felt that and that you you took action you mm -hmm. know you know i commend you on that because a lot of people you know they feel that and then it's just like dang i don't know what to do i i you know they get kind of like you know it, it it holds them back and stuff but the fact that you was like no i gotta i gotta do something is it's, it's commendable because i think a lot of People are feeling that and are actually taking action, and that's why we're starting to really have an impact on this right now. You know, as far as when it comes to, you know, the the, the, the situation with the NYPD in our communities, I, you know, I put out a an act called the Village Act, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you you can look it up on my website, um, where I believe that. What's the, the website? What's the website? Oh, it's um, www.votecoelho4bx.org. Okay, so check that out. Yeah, guys. so check that out. Um, it's on my social, on my social medias as well too. So I put it, I put a, 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 a village act out because I believe that the way that the, the NYPD is structured right now, no matter who's in it or who's mm -hmm. who's in charge of it or whatever, it's it's not meant to work for us as a community, mm -hmm. right? We have to find the culture of the NYPD has to change. 
in, that, in order to better intertwine with the culture of our communities and stuff. Correct. And so I put out a Village Act which really states a lot of recommendations of, of the culture that needs to change within the, within the um, police department, steps that they can take to, with, to start to build that. So, for example, one of the things that I, I made as a recommendation was that every single individual that comes into the NYPD and its leadership and its current leadership needs to take some sort of um, kind of like a history lesson of the role that law enforcement in this country had with the oppression of black and brown people. Right. They need to understand that when you put that uniform on, people are not just reacting to you. The They're not instantly reacting to you, the person. They're reacting to what the law enforcement uniform and understand that law enforcement is basically was the tip of the spear when it came to how they were oppressing you know, black and brown people throughout this country, right? And 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 think of the, a lot of the Ku Klux Klan when they took their hoodies off and couldn't, you know, really be around with their hoodies on. They put on the uniform and stuff, and they they hid behind the shield and, and a lot of those aspects. So th- there is a lot of racism within law enforcement. And I know people say, nah, but there's black and brown people in in law enforcement. Yeah, they are. But the, once you step into that, the culture takes over. Mm-hmm. The culture of what the police takes over. You just you can't help but succumb to what that culture it's is. It's like right? an indoctrination. Yeah, you have to. Or yes. you won't be able to survive. They won't right. let you survive in there if you're not following that culture, right? So yes. things like that. that. That type of education has to happen. Um, there's, there should be legislation passed that says, like, an, any any new officer within the first five years of, of, of working in the NYPD, he, he has to live in the community, right? He has to live in the community that he's going to be policing. Now, I went as far as said that it should be a financial benefit to it. Like, those officers should get some sort of stipend for their rent, right? Like, if you're living there, we're going to make it beneficial for you financially because also I know that a lot of the NYPD, when they start off, they don't start off at a a huge high salary Mm -hmm. or nothing like that, right? Mm -hmm. So this would be a financial benefit for them as well, too. Hey, you come in, uh, the first few years, you're only going to be making such and such, but you're going to be able to live in an apartment in your district 80%, 80%, 80%, 80%, you know, you know, rent off and stuff for those mm-hmm. first five years. Then when your rent then boosts up, I mean, when your salary boosts up, then you can either stay there, pay the full rent, or move out and go live in Long Island or something like they usually mm-hmm. do and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of little steps that has to happen culturally, right? The, the other thing I, I mentioned, every quarter they should be, like, just like right now how we have, like, the census blitz, everybody, how you're getting, you see how you're getting those texts about voter registration? There should be a focused outreach saying how do you feel about your local police right now how give us some feedback talk to us how, how like bringing in the community to an aspects of like okay what are we doing what can we do different what how, what have your interactions have been and that have to be something that has to be followed up on on the different levels so the culture of the entire NYPD has to change it can't be the way that it is now it doesn't matter if you if you feel the entire on police department with black and brown people, it's mm-hmm. still not gonna. It's still not gonna change because it's just the way that they do things. Law enforcement does things. It has to be able to. And this is the time to do it. Like I tell people all the time, if, if there's any moment in history that we can change how law enforcement treats communities like ours, this is the moment right now. And you can't. You you we can't let this opportunity pass by. Right. So would you now using that right? Would you say that you know with the history of racism and just policing? you know, um, the history of police brutality over excessive force. Do you think that that all stems from, uh, you know, I go, I'll turn key to like, his, I'm putting on my history hat as a, as a mm-hmm. teacher, right? Do you think that we are considered three-fifths of a person, right? Do you think 
where racism plays a lot a lot yeah. into it um oh, and yeah. uh you know is racism a disease and can it be eradicated right yeah no <laughs> you know i one of the people that i studied a little bit remember going back to what you said about people that i i studied it I studied um, Condoleezza Rice one time, right? I, mm-hmm. I read a little bit up on her. And they asked her about racism in this country, you know, because she got a lot of heat on her for being a black woman under, you know, under Bush and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're like, why, why are you working so hard for this man? And, you know, and, this? and so they was asking her about racism. And she, she, said, she said, you know, I really love this country. You know, I really, really care about this country. But racism is like a birth defect, right? Like, it, it was born like that. And so we have to either make a choice, are we going to still care about this country and the people that's in it and just understand that, you know, it does have this birth defect and how do we, how do we, how do we get the most out of it even with this birth defect, right? And so I do think that, you know, um, racism is, it's just ingrained in, into all these different systems, right? Like the, the law enforcement is a system that was built on racism, you know, and you can go down the line of education, always, everything has been infected by the disease of racism, and so you have to almost treat it like a cancer, you, you have to go in there, cut the, this whole thing out, mm-hmm. and, 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 and hopefully, you know, come something new that's not um, infected by um, the cancer of racism and stuff, and so, yeah, and, and, I'll, and running is important for me because I want to be able to step into these rooms and be able to speak as a person that this this has actually affected me. We have people in these rooms negotiating these things and speaking in behalf of our communities that this never even impacted you. So how hard are you going in these rooms when this never even impacted you? I, I, I grew up through stop and frisk, right? Like I, I personally was affected by that to, to, to today. I'm a 45 year old man and if I turn, a, if I'm driving and a police officer, a, a vehicle pulls up behind me, I'm looking for the through the mirror, waiting for it to light up. Like, oh, here we go. And it, but that's trauma. Like I've been through this already, right? And I remember go, as a kid coming from playing basketball tournaments with basketball shorts on, with a ball, coming through with the guys, and we we talking, we hype because we won our game, and pull out, you know, guns coming out on us. Y'all, everybody get up against the thing. We frisking all of y'all. I'm like, we coming from a basketball game. I got my tournament shorts on and stuff you know like why why are you treating us like this you know and so i've experienced that on many levels you know guns pointed at me for no reason all that so when i get into these rooms can nobody tell me that i don't know what i'm talking about can nobody tell me that i didn't experience these things and please be at least be mindful that i'm coming in here in a way that i'm trying to find a happy medium because i'm not letting those traumas um affect me in a way where i'm not I'm not, I'm not having an open dialogue with how we can do this better, but at least, but respect the fact that I've been through this. Mm-hmm. And that's why I want to be able to get into these rooms, have these conversations about police reform. That's why I put out my Village Act and send it out. And I, I, I wrote an op-ed as well on it on, um, on City Limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look that up as well, too. It's, it's on my, it's on my um, website. It's on my Twitter and everything. And I wrote a whole op-ed about it as well, too, introducing the Village Act that, yo, this is important because I, I've been through this already. Like, I went through this. And so there's nobody going to be able to speak to it more than, than, than what I can. Right. So I, how do you, so in the political field, right, like I just said, it's very volatile, right? So how do you kind of, like, don't fall into the angry, the angry black man, mm. and so seen as the angry black man? Because sometimes <laughs> we, we, we are seen as such when we are, 
um, we can be overzealous. We can be outspoken. We then we are kind of tagged as oh this he's angry, or he's um animated, right? Mm -hmm. But it, but how do you kind of like sway through those you know very fine lines? Right? Yeah, you know I met with one time a woman. Her name is Bertha Lewis. She runs the what's called the Black Institute, and super wise woman. She's been around since the days of Acorn and all these. She's been, she's been a social activist for years, and I asked her that question. I said, I said, brother, I'm going into this politic world, but I'm angry. I'm going into it angry about what has been done to my people, what's, what's been happening. Like, how do, I have this chip on my shoulder of this anger. How, how do I go into this and not come across like that? How, how, do I, how do I go into this not being so angry? She said, let me tell you something. The day that you get into that and you're not feeling angry anymore, you come back over here and you come talk to me because you better never lose that anger. You better never lose that chip on your shoulder because that's what's going to push you to do the right things for the people in the community and stuff. You don't never you never lose it. Mm. What you learn how to do is navigate through where you're at and how to manage through it, right? How to control again going back to my, you know, emotional intelligence, understanding that when I'm upset about something Okay, let me process this emotion, but then now let me go figure out what's the right thing to go do at that point, you know? And and I and I, I don't have a problem with people looking at me saying that I'm upset about something. Yeah, you damn right I'm upset about something. Mm -hmm. I'm upset that the fact that I had to watch a man put a knee get a knee on his neck and, and, and the life came out of him and he and he, that that man is no longer here. But at the same time, I've been working in the education system and I've watched hundreds of kids with with knees on their neck and the life, the educational life getting squeezed out of them as well, too. So I've been seeing that for 10 years. As mad as y'all at for, for seeing something that, that happened a few months ago, think about how mad I am for the last 10 years watching that and stuff. Right. So I tell people all that time, yeah, I'm, I'm going to navigate those things. It's not going to make me less, you know, uh, with the ability to communicate, to, to be able to sit down and, 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 and hear other people's views of things and stuff. Like, I'm still going to be able to do all of that. But, yeah, just understand when you come into this room with me that yeah I am mad and mm -hmm. be sure to make sure you understand that because that's what's going to be kind of fueling my conversation and my point of view right I, I guess I guess it's, it's, it's the Libra in you right very <laughs> even cool like just you know I kind of right. know it's a balance right no no pun intended right, to, right, right. to the, the podcast Libra. right so um so finally I know that you have you obviously have a birthday coming up mm -hmm. and I know that you're um you're uh, very, like I said, your your campaign is homegrown and very grassroots. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so what? How can people support you? How can we get more in tune with the stuff that you're doing? Mm -hmm. um, are you doing anything coming up for your birthday? Talk to us about that. So yeah, I, I mean, just recently I was giving away book bags at um, McKinley Projects um, here in the district. Uh, connected with a really um, good organization. They wanted to come in and, and partner off. And so it was beautiful to be out there and seeing those kids and, and, and parents. Like, people feel like the kids aren't go really going back to school or whatever, that they don't need these things, right? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, they still need this stuff, mm -hmm. right? Book bags don't last forever. Right. Um, and so then we gave out some book bags with, with some supplies in them. You know, definitely have something for the Halloween, for the kids coming out, giving out. You know, I'm also uh, going around talking to people about the census and the importance of that. You know, that only comes around 10 years and you know the, the budget that we need especially right now with the, the hole that the COVID has put us into like this budget is even more important coming up as well too so just doing a lot of grassroots stuff around that going around asking people have you filled it out it only takes 10 minutes and then also my you know being a, a, a 
Afro-Latino man, I like having conversations with, with the Latinos. I like, look, it's okay. You know, la información que tú pones aquí no hace algo que le vamos a dar ice or like migración or not eso. And when they hear that, they're like, oh, okay, I feel a little more confident now. Right. So taking on that responsibility, that role, doing that, you know, as you know, as far as the campaign goes, you know, my my election is in June 2021, right? Mm -hmm. So I do have a large window still happening where I'm campaigning. You know, starting you know early 2021, we're really going to be out there doing you know a lot of petitioning, canvassing, going out there, kind of really on the on my soapbox, you know, like microphone and <laughs> you know bullhorn in front of train stations and talking to different people. And we're really going to roll that out. We have a plan of like going through. You know, my pledge was that I want to I want to be seen on every single block of this district at least three times. At least three times, somebody I, I gotta catch everybody in this whole district. So I have a big map in my in my house of the district, and I'm and I'm just we're just mapping everything out. I, I'm gonna hit every single train station, every bus stop, every corner, every NYCHA, and just just gonna be visible out there. You know, um, the way individuals can support. You know, volunteering is important. Like the, the two, I tell people all the time, the the lifeline of a campaign is volunteering and donations, right? And um, it doesn't take a lot to win a campaign, believe it or not. That's why I want trying to convey to people like, if I can do this tomorrow, you can do this, bro. Like mm -hmm. you can you can be the next whatever elected official here. It doesn't take that much. It really takes boots on the ground. It takes walking up to people. This is who I am. Talking to them, you know, making that connection. And when they go to that booth, they remember you. They say, oh, I remember. That's the dude that that I was talking to, and I, and I asked this question to him, and he answered me. He was he was giving out boot bags, you know, in September of 2020. And his election is in, in, in June 2021 and stuff, you know? So he's been out here every day. So you make that connection, uh, but I wouldn't, I'll be doing it injustice as I, if I said funding is not important, right? Funding mm -hmm. is important. Like, you know, any donation, every $5, $10, that helps because there's, you know, there's flyers that need to be made. There's mailers that you got to send out. You know, you have to have petitions. You know, there's, there's, there's some finances around it. And um, the good thing about it is that the city has a program called Eight to One Matching Funds. Mm -hmm. And th that, that program was put in place because they wanted to encourage small gr grassroots people like me to run without worrying about that I'm going to be outspent by some high-priced you know, money person that could come in and just throw a whole lot of money mm -hmm. all around. So well, the way it works is for every dollar that I get from a New York City resident, the city then gives me eight dollars on it right so if you give me ten dollars that turns around and becomes eighty dollars mm -hmm. and stuff right and that helps with a hundred eight hundred right exactly and that <laughs> okay. helps out with the competitive balance when it comes to to finances and stuff and so right. january once once i meet a certain a couple milestones that you got to meet in january they they'll start slowly every month sending you the matching funds account so you can start continuing to campaign so definitely you know if you could go on my website again you know, votecoelho4bx.org. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to the bottom, there's a link that sends you right there to our donation site. Um, um, there's also uh, an email uh, link that you can click on. If you give me your information, I can also put you on, like, on our database. So when we start sending information out, letting people know, hey, we're going to be at this corner to say, we're going to be over here. Come join us. Come hang out. Come get a cup of coffee. You know, I'll start sending a lot of that stuff out. And I just want to be able to be out there with people. You know, at the end of the day, I just want a family. I want... I, that that village act, I didn't I didn't just name it a village act because it was a catchy name. Like I really want to look at the district in the Bronx as trying to bring everyone together like a village. At the end of the day, you know, I we need to look at our history 
and how our communities and our, our people were able to use being in a village and that, that camaraderie and bringing everybody together and implementing that, that now to get us out of a lot of these situations that we're in right now. Right, that's, that's beautiful, man. That's something that's commendable. Um, like I said, I wish you all the best of luck, man. Thank you, thank As you, much, man. I, we will definitely be here. Um, this is also, like I said, it's 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 to uh, it's an expose of you and you, what you're doing and why you got into politics. So this, hopefully, this will propel yeah. um, some of the stuff that you're it. doing. Um, yeah, I appreciate you for sitting down here with us today and kind of talking about you know where you came from, your humble beginnings, your uh, rise to the uh, you know hopefully the next you know mm -hmm. uh city council member for district 16 mm -hmm. um and you know this is the balance effect podcast here with just prince thank you mr coelho and uh we'll be seeing you